This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right, it's going. Welcome, Joseph. See the numbers. You see them right there? Thank you. That's how you can tell mm, mm-hmm. if the numbers are moving. Hello, world. How are we? <laughs> what should I target for? I, yes. So this, Anything? T- you talk to this part here. No, I mean, as long as it's... As long as the numbers are... Because what we've done is we've recorded podcasts in the past and then found out that the damn thing wasn't even turned on. <laughs> and then it's like, really? That was three hours. Oh, duh. You know, and, it's, and we have to do it all over again? Screw that. <laughs> you'd, you'd think we were anti-tech or something. <laughs> all right. So uh, today we're going to talk a lot about seeds and breeding, annuals, uh, a little bit of perennials, mostly annuals. Um, and then uh, we got a little bit of a treat a little later on. We're going to talk about um, winter greens and uh, and then a, a couple tips on foraging in general. But uh, uh, Joseph Lofthouse is uh, one of the staff at permies.com who happened to be, and, and I think he said, this is your first trip anywhere? <laughs> That's because you're seven, right? <laughs> I went with my mom and dad to Montana. And so, um, but uh, uh, I don't know, old person gets to grooving on a garden. Gardens, you just can't pluck them up and take them with you. And so, you, you, it's hard. You don't really, you tend to just not travel a lot. Why travel? The garden's still in the same spot. But of course, here we are in Montana. It's February, in the middle of winter, and the garden's kind of taken a hiatus anyway. So, you know, it's kind of giving you permission to go if you want. Yep. And, and you had all these places you could go, and you thought you'd come here. I know, Montana. <laughs> we'll go see Paul Wheaton. <laughs> So uh, uh, now, of course, you got a hell of a following for the kind of ways that you breed your seeds. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Yes. And you're on your way somewhere. Oh, I'm I'm headed to the Organic Seed Growers Conference over in Corvallis, Washington. Corvallis, Oregon. Oregon, yes, yeah. thank you. It's a whole different state. I know. I've got They're picky about their names and stuff. <laughs> Even trying to get there, Google will be picky, too. I thought that I saw Corvallis, Montana on my way up here. There is. I got a video of a thing in Corvallis, Montana. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, it's a totally different Corvallis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm headed over there, and should be a fun time. And <laughs> You're speaking in Washington on the way, and you're speaking right after the seed conference, right? Yes. So on the 13th of February, I'm speaking in Seattle about um, land-race gardening, food security through common sense and traditional methods. Nice. And then after the conference on the 18th of February, I am holding a table down for the open source seed initiative and in Corvallis that's in Corvallis also okay cool um, alright so uh, uh, I thought I was going to have a slow day today but uh, Jocelyn is so excited that Joseph is here <laughs> that she started making all these notes and said we're recording a podcast actually she said you're recording a podcast <laughs> and I and so I kind of am forcing Jocelyn to be in on it because it's her idea to have a podcast. So, so if you guys like this podcast, you can thank Jocelyn. <laughs> and if you don't like it, you can blame Jocelyn. <laughs> but actually, now that I've talked to Joseph this much, just today, it's like, I think this is going to be a really good podcast, even if I'm uh, feeling a bit um, uh, off. Well, <clears> just <throat> the conversations over breakfast, I thought, oh, this should be a podcast. And... 
I don't know the questions to ask, and Paul... This is your handwriting right here. You're making a list of stuff to talk yeah. about, and 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 you're like pushing paper and a pen in front of me, like, here, finish my list. Of what, you know, so... Uh, but anyway, so the very thing, the very first thing you have written down on this is, what are landrace seeds? Hmm. So landrace seeds are a traditional way of growing vegetables. Re the, the current model of growing vegetables is to have everything highly inbred and to, to have a, know what the pedigree is and to keep it super pure. In landrace gardening, what we do is we say, I'm just going to grow squash. And I want the squash to be genetically diverse. I want it to be locally adapted to my specific garden, even to a specific field in my garden. And what that does is it allows the crops to change with the weather. It allows them to change with the bugs. It allows them to change with the farmer's habits. Um, and so, so they they become hyper locally adapted to to grow really well and consistently year after year in a particular location and they also get adapted to the the community's tastes their preferences how the community likes doing things so if you if you have an urban lot let's say uh -huh. and you grew some squash in your front yard and you grew some squash in your backyard uh, by using these techniques, you might have some some significantly different, like like if you just grew squash in your front yard and kept those seeds for ten years, and you grew squash in your backyard and you called these the backyard seeds mm -hmm. for ten years, that um, if you tried to switch them one year, like you grew the backyard seeds in the front yard and the front yard seeds in the backyard, you you might have like a lesser crop than you otherwise would because they've and you, now the pod people can't hear you <laughs> nodding your head that this is me nodding my head yes <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so um, well yeah but but yeah there could be differences there might be differences caused by shade or by the soil type or whatever and and your squash could adapt to that like one thing i see often is people want to grow well like if if you're growing in a lot of compost, you could select for varieties that thrive in compost. If you're growing in more sandy soil in the front yard versus the back, you know, you could select for crops that that met those conditions. So you could, you know, and so if we, we just stick to squash for a moment, then it's it's possible that you could have some really horrible soil. Mm -hmm. Like, nothing really grows there at all. But you could go ahead and uh, and and grow 200 different plants, and uh, 192 of them are going to just they they'll never get to the point that they produce anything at all. Right. And then you have eight that do produce. Uh huh. And then you save those seeds, and you plant 200 the next year, and then you have 40 that actually produce something. Right. And um, and then you keep doing this year after year after year for let's say ten years, and now uh, you're growing lots of plants. And I mean, it, you, you could argue about how tasty they are, right. <laughs> <laughs> how productive they are, but um, uh, you've now got something that does particularly well for your site where you are not perhaps not irrigating um, and not mulching. What whatever is like your style, mm -hmm. these are things that have been optimized. To right. what is your and style? I, in my experience, it takes about three years to adopt adopt a variety to a particular growing system, because because huh. the first year you get a few scragglers that might produce something, the second year you get a pretty decent crop, but then by the third year I call it the magical year, because because it just seems to work well. Nice. And of course, there's there's limits to that. Like watermelon is a species that's sort of outside of the ecological limits to grow on my farm. But anything that grows decently well on my farm is about 
three years is the the magical year for it. Cool. So, all right, so you might have watermelons that, uh, like, again, you plant 200 of them, 200 plants, and 192 of them die. Like, don't, don't you know, produce any fruit whatsoever. Right. And then um, on the third year, um, that's more like half of them are dying. Well, no, it's it's like, I'll tell a story about cantaloupes. I planted about 50 varieties of cantaloupes on my garden. And the first year, 70% of them died or they didn't produce fruit. And, uh, and all of them that did produce fruit just produced green fruits. And then, but they had some viable seeds in them. So the second year... I replanted those, and there were like three plants that thrived for me and produced more fruit than all of the rest of the patch combined. Mm -hmm. And so I replanted seeds from those. In the third year, I was harvesting 100 pounds of cantaloupes a week. Wow. You know, from the same size of a patch. And and so it was was really lovely. That's really fast. Mm -hmm. And I... In, in my farm, I don't fertilize at all, and I don't mulch or compost, so I'm growing my plants in, in poor fertility conditions because it's a lot easier for me to select for genetics that do good at my farm than it is for me to select, than it is to change the soil. And, and so I kind of like it when my seeds go to somebody else in a, that actually has fertile soil. Because then they just <laughs> burst out of the ground and really take over. <laughs> I, I get I get razzed a lot about my medium muskmelons because it, to me medium is about a five to ten pound squash, but I send them out to other people and they they're getting fifteen pound squash. And, wow. Yeah, that's a medium. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're breeding the the future kudzu of the north. I hope so. It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. All right. Um, uh, Jocelyn, so, okay, so I think we got a good idea what, what land race seeds are. Mm-hmm. And while you're the land race seed guy, is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say, isn't it? That's fair to say. Yeah. Awesome. Then, then it's an old term. And, uh, uh, and basically what it, and I think what, what it's saying is, is like, stop being so damn picky about yeah. this. Cause I've always been kind of picky. Like always pick just one. If you're going to save seeds, just pick one variety that's not a hybrid variety and save mm-hmm. the seeds from that. But after we've been talking this morning, it's like I'm learning that I've been going about this all wrong. Well, it's not wrong. It's just a, a different way of looking at it. No, no. See, I like what you're saying. Uh, uh, because what you're saying is, is like, don't you know? If you use your brains a little bit, you can be like ten times lazier. I, I like that. I, <laughs> well, well, yeah, like, I, I took I, notes. Did you see where I wrote all that shit down? I, I, I don't have. I don't have to worry about keeping things pure. I don't have to worry about. Oh, what if it changes next year? It's like I don't care. A squash is a squash. I'm gonna eat it the same way i'm cooking it the same way i'm cutting it the same way i'm growing it the same way it's a squash and no matter how much it breeds with other things it's still going to be some kind of squash that's roughly similar to the other ones right and because because the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree things tend to resemble their parents and their grandparents and if i start with great squash i'm going to have great squash in the children so now <clears throat> For squash, this is this is a fun. Uh, now, of course, you want to mix in gourds. Uh-huh. Yeah, you probably don't want to mix in the loofah. <laughs> well, well, there are different species. So loofah is a different species, so it might okay. not cross. Okay, all right, but might, it might. might not. It might. <laughs> it might. Okay, so but but gourds are the same species, uh-huh. and so you could get something with an iron-clad outer, and you'd be kind of like, so uh, no, thank you. Some years ago. A gourd contaminated the delicata seed, the the seed company that was growing delicata for the whole United States, maybe the whole world. <laughs> and so people all of a sudden were getting poisonous delicatas. Because gourds are poisonous. Well, yeah, the the bad taste is a poison. Oh, okay. And and so the delicata name got ruined by that seed company that that mixed the gourds with the 
the Delicatas, and I don't think they've ever recovered their reputation after that. Which, wow. you know, and in fact, this is going to come up later, but there's a lot of discussion in uh, uh, interesting seeds and interesting plants that you can grow, as well as wildcrafting, where there's certain people that say, you know, um, parts of a television set are edible. <laughs> <clears throat> And it's like, and the real question is, is it palatable? And then I think there's something also to be said for like, a lot of times if it tastes damn nasty, you need not only do you want to spit it out, but but you some people are like, oh, if it tastes <laughs> if it tastes terrible, it's probably good for you. But actually, no. If you don't like the taste of it, definitely spit it out because you might be eating something that is not you know, most poisons taste damn nasty. And and right. in fact. Just tasting it, tasting stuff as you go about in wildcrafting and all these other uh, endeavors. <clears throat> I mean, first of all, if you've grown lots and lots of food, why would you want to eat something that tastes damn nasty anyway? Uh-huh. Uh, but the other thing is, is that usually the stuff that's toxic tastes terrible. Right. So, you know, your tongue is your first defense there. Um, so if you go to the grocery store and you buy something, even though it's got a big sticker on it that says, <laughs> this is food, then, you know, you, you still have the right to spit it out. And you can go into that grocery store and you can throw it at the people that work there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about one grocery store we go to. And for some reason, the guy at the front desk, I just hate that guy. Oh, yeah. Right. So I'm glad to throw stuff at him. This is not edible. You, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not edible because you suck. <laughs> so uh, something like that. But uh, when when growing stuff, it is. But uh, um, outside of uh, you know mixing in a gourd, because it was a gourd that mm-hmm. got mixed in, because uh, they are the same species and they will right. cross. And so uh, 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 note one: don't grow gourds with your squashes and save the seeds. Right. Okay. It's a good tip. <laughs> Write that down. Don't don't save seeds from (coughs) sweet peppers and hot peppers if you want to keep them separate. (laughs) So, and of course, uh, uh, we've got some more to say about some species uh, you don't want to mix so much, and Mm -hmm. we're going to get to that in a moment. But, but the first thing that I want to point out is is that you have five different plots that you grow on, yeah, and they're each like about an acre. Um, two acres total. So one, oh, okay. one field's like an acre, and one's a half an acre, and one's a quarter acre, and then a, you know, a few odds and ends. But the cool thing about having them all spread out like that, um, and we've got some more to say about all that. There's mm-hmm. some fascinating stuff in the way you run your operation there. But um, the cool thing when it comes to genetics is that if you want to grow. Uh, uh, field corn, mm-hmm. and you want to grow sweet corn, and you want to grow popcorn. I have three fields. You've got, <laughs> yeah, you can, you got three different places to grow because you don't want to try and grow those on the same field. That's well, one where you don't right. want to get too uh, adventuresome and mixing it up and like, oh, let's let the genetics cross between these because I love it when I'm eating sweet corn to get a popcorn in there and <laughs> break a couple teeth. That's my favorite thing. Yeah. And and field corn is is great for storing and making into cornbread and stuff like that. Um, but you know, it's not so good as a sweet corn. I mean, you can eat it as a sweet corn. Right. Uh, you know, but you probably would think like this. Is not very good. I'm not going to save this seed, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think I've ever tried to do that, but I've heard of people who have to eat field corn as sweet corn. I, I don't like doing that. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. And, and I think as we get into this, this is a good time to say that um, uh, when it comes to the whole world of palatable, I mean, there's uh, there's a long list of stuff that's edible. Like uh-huh. some dumb fuck somewhere <laughs> ate some of that and didn't die. Uh-huh. And so it's like, therefore, it is edible, but it's damn nasty. And so I think through all of our conversation uh, uh, this morning, um, <clears throat> you uh, are pretty picky about what you put in your pie hole. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff that people say is edible, and you're like, I tried that once. <laughs> like like lettuce? <laughs> 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 So all lettuce, you don't care for any lettuce. 
There is not a lettuce grown. I, I'm working on selecting for a lettuce that I could like, but in my in my climate, mm. in my soil, I do not like lettuce. So we had a fellow out here uh, the last few years, and he liked to eat that prickly lettuce, and I could not. <laughs> I tried that once, and uh, I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm never, I'm never putting that in my mouth again." Um, uh, but uh, I don't know. There's. There's some lettuces like uh, that that I'll eat once in a while on stuff, uh, but but not too terribly often. Um, well, uh, I I will eat iceberg lettuce that's grown properly in a in a cool damp climate like California, but nothing that's grown in my garden. <laughs> um, another interesting thing to talk is about uh, talk about when it comes to like mixing species because it's like on the one hand you got your squashes as long as there's not gourds and you're growing a bunch of squashes mm-hmm. then grow 20 different varieties and right. and let them all cross and save those seeds and then uh, and then save those seeds and then save those seeds and and until you got 10 years down the road you've got some stuff that's that stuff that you particularly like because you saved the best seeds yeah and and it just pleases my taste buds and my uh, my nose, and it cuts easy in the kitchen, so I don't have any wooden shells. And you know, I get to select for what I like in my garden, in my habits, what my community likes. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, you've been uh, selling squash to restaurants and at uh-huh. the market. Um, I I sell to a couple restaurants and. I've been selecting for color because that's what my chefs want. They want they want color in their food. Yeah. And so so my squash are really bright orange and not little pale yellows. Yeah, and I think you've talked about they're probably higher in beta carotene with that color. I, I think that the orange is due to beta carotene. Yeah. So um, uh, the the important thing is is that um, and it'll also do exceptionally well on your soil, and tolerate your particular flavor of abuse. Right. Well, for example, I had a a lady that was farming with me a, a couple years ago, and she bought a seed packet from the grocery or you know the seed company, and she planted it in my garden, and it got totally consumed by squash bugs. I don't even know that I ha- that I have squash bugs because my plants don't care about squash bugs. Anything that had squash bugs ten years ago got chopped out and didn't produce fruit, and so I just forgot about that species. But oh, there- there's a good one too. I mean, it's like okay, awesome. so you you plant twenty different varieties, and then it's like if if the squash bugs come and mm-hmm. and obliterate half of them. Then it's like, well, those plants obviously sucked. Yeah, and that that's great statistics for a plant breeder, for a seed saver, because I got 50% that did really well. Yeah, and then and then next year you you plant the children of the ones that lived, mm-hmm. and then obviously they're going to defend themselves fine or better against squash bugs. Right. But if any of those children don't do particularly good against squash bugs, well, then they ain't breeding, are they? No. Yeah. <clears throat> I. I don't have blossom end rot on my tomatoes because that's an intolerable trait to me. And it doesn't matter to me if it's calcium or water or whatever causes it. I call it a genetic defect. And as I just chop that plant out, you know, because that's something I'm not going to tolerate in my garden. And so I don't. That's great. Well, and before, I've got this other thing I want to get to, and I keep looking at it, and it's like, that's what I want to talk about next. <laughs> but um, just real quick, because um, uh, a lot of people are worried about crossbreeding plants. I know mm-hmm. I have until this morning. And it's like, you know, but I, uh, uh, the thing is, like, okay, like, let's say, because cause hybrid stuff mm-hmm. is where um, they have very specifically selected a very exact uh, variety of mother and a very exact variety of father. Right. And uh, and then they do the breeding thing under very controlled conditions. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, uh, they they harvest the seeds from that, and that's the seeds that they sell. Right. And so it's kind of like, uh, all right, so we've all learned don't ever, don't ever 
And this is, and I'm thinking Sepp Holzer. Man, boy, does Sepp Holzer <laughs> ever get fucking pissed off? Don't ever buy a hybrid seed. And your advice is actually the opposite. Yes. Um, there are certain species that I don't like hybridization on because they're made with cytoplasmic male sterility. Mm-hmm. And that's basically... It's complicated. Okay. But but I really love growing things from hybrids because they, the children and the grandchildren are separating out into all kinds of varieties. And some of those varieties are going to do really well for me. Mm-hmm. And some of them might just be mediocre. But in general, if you start with great parents, the I mean, the seed industry spent decades finding great parents for these hybrids the children are going to tend to be great as well. And so I I enjoy hybrids. So I guess the, the place where I want to go now is, is to say, <clears throat> all right, so you've, you've grown uh, uh, a bunch of different things. You've, you've gotten mm-hmm. 20 different species of squash, and you plant them in your garden. And uh, uh, some of them live, some of them die, whatever. And then you save the seeds, and and uh, next year you plant them all out. And uh, um, I don't know, just looking at the first year, I mean, some of them are going to die. Some of yeah. those plants are not going to make it. Some of those plants are going to just get covered in squash bugs. Some of those plants are going to succumb to funguses and whatever. And mm-hmm. and you're and and then because you planted so much, um, you're going to be like, oh yeah, uh, whatever. Whatever. I got more. <laughs> um, and now, okay, so what's left? Uh, uh, let's say, let's say half the plants made it, and um, and so you go and you try out these squashes. Now, out of the ones that survived, um, there's going to be better ones and and not so good ones. Right. And now, that, that I think what people are thinking is like, if I go out and I buy these F1 hybrid seeds just every year, then um, they're all. Go- it's going to be pretty much the exact same thing every year that I'm growing. Yes. And it's very predictable. And they've worked very hard to come up with some superpowers that are going to be just amazing for me, and and I'm going to really really enjoy this. <clears throat> Whereas if you save the seeds and plant the seeds, you're going to get all kinds of crazy, and you're going to get a bad plant. And and it's going to grow fine, um, and it's going to produce squash, but what makes a bad squash? What's going to be a squash where it's like, that took up space in my garden, <laughs> and now I'm angry at that plant? So, if it tastes bad, I mean, well, there's... No, let me rephrase that. If it if it tastes beautiful, you're comparing the beautiful tasting squash to the mediocre tasting squash to the the blast squash. But even the blast squash that you grow yourself is probably going to taste better than what you get out of the grocery store. So you're no worse off than buying a squash from the grocery store. And then you just don't save the seeds from that blah one. Right. Yeah. But now... Um the other thing is, is that I, I the, so the worst thing that's going to happen is not all that bad. Right. You get a you get a squash that, that could have been better. Uh, yeah. I mean, you you use some space in your garden and you got a grocery store squash out of it. Now let's talk about the upside. Um, uh, let's say you started with you know you have you have twenty squash plants out in your garden. And uh, you you planted them all the exact same F1 that first year, mm-hmm. and and you went through 20 garden catalogs and you found the one seed that you wanted. So you bought a packet of those, and that's what you planted. And uh, they grew, and and the and and it was consistent. You only lost one plant, and um, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're talking about saving the seeds and replanting them, and you're like four years down the road. Um, uh, what can you say? And now they're all different. All the plants are not the same. Right. They're all really different. Um, and I guess where I'm, I'm fishing, I'm going to, I want, I'm just going to say it, then you can tell me that it's true or I'm full of shit. There's, there's, <laughs> I've been looking forward to that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your moment. I'm setting you up. (laughs) That the best squash plant is far better than what you had that first year. 
that's been my experience. Yeah, because now, because those those that F one, that's like designed to try to be the best possible it could be for everybody all across the nation. Everywhere, yeah. right? An an average squash for an average garden, right? But. But I don't want an average squash for an average garden. I want a squash specifically to my garden, to my taste buds, to my community, to my soil, to my bugs. Yeah. And so, uh, and so now you've got something that's just spectacular. Um, mm-hmm. And not, and it's not four percent better. It's forty percent better, or even a hundred percent better. Like it's like twice as good. Right. It's easier. It's got all the properties that you long for in a really good squash. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to get to the thing that um, I, I, I keep putting off here because it's it's exciting and that is like now let's talk about stuff where this this system totally fails and I'm I'm thinking about cold crops <laughs> let's let's grow let's grow a row of cabbage next to a row of broccoli next to a row of kale uh, kale and collards and the brussels sprouts although i don't know why anybody would want to ever put a brussels sprout in their I mouth love brussels sprouts. <laughs> oh, those are nasty <laughs> yeah okay but you've you've got like eight rows of coal crops uh-huh. and and uh, not everybody knows those are all the exact same species. Right. They're just different varieties of the same species. So they breed with each other. Correct. So so a, a kale breeds with a cabbage, which which can breed with any of the can breed with a damn Brussels sprout of all things. Like, oh <laughs> that's that's a horrible thing to think of. So <clears throat> Uh, and and so I I when you started telling me about this, this is what I threw at you, uh, and I thought your answer was fabulous. Oh. And that's and that's after <laughs> you save you save the seeds, and then you you plant those the next year, and then you save those seeds, and then you plant the, the you know you select for whatever is your best or whatever. But the thing is, is that in ten years, what do you end up with? Green leafy vegetables. Yeah, that's it. Just a bunch of leafy stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like uh, you've if you want to keep cabbages, don't plant broccoli. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, if, or or you can plant it and just harvest the broccoli before it goes to seed, kind of thing. Ah, to prevent the right or pollination. Right, and if you want locally adopt adapted bra- broccoli. Uh, collaborate with your neighbors and let them grow the broccoli seed and you grow the cabbage seed. And of course, another possible way of it of doing this is to have five different five plots fields. divided by <laughs> miles, you know, and then you can say, I'm going to grow broccoli in this one, and I'm going to grow cabbage in that one, right. and, and that kind of thing. And, the only risk you have is if some neighbor is growing something that might mess with it, but then, you know, you'll kind of correct that on the second year. It's like, right. the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's supposed to be a broccoli. That looks like a Frankenstein broccoli. And pollination is a highly localized event. And so even growing stuff in your front yard and your backyard might be enough separation to basically eliminate the problem. That's right. And and so you, you had a vocabulary word for so that. So I I said I said is it asymptotic? Uh, oh man, I can't even say it. <laughs> asymptotic. And so it's an asymptotic scale. And so basically meaning that if it's within three or four feet, very high probability of pollination. But then, um, you know, as you get like, you know, 10 feet away, it drops significantly. And when you mm-hmm. get to be 20 feet away, it drops even more. And and right. so asymptotic is where it approaches zero rapidly. And mm-hmm. then it's all about this how close to zero are you scale. <laughs> and, and that's what the big seed companies and the seed saving books are worried about is we got to get as close to zero as we can possibly get. Where for a backyard grower, you know, 30 feet, 100 feet is is a really good separation distance for a lot of crops. And then, yeah, and plus you don't have to worry so much about if something comes up off. Right. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I. Um, and then of course your corn is going to be wind pollinated, so it's it's probably mm-hmm. even you know. Well, when I do the math on corn pollen, in a 10 mile an hour wind, the pollen falls to the ground within 25 feet. 
Okay. Well, you know, it is a rough approximation. So your neighbors will impact your stuff, but not as much as you might think. Right. Yeah. All right. So um, uh, I also have a note here that as much as we talk about squash and um, being able to do this technique with squash, make sure to plant 20 different varieties. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then another interesting thing is that you've often said something about like uh, you like to introduce ten uh, percent uh, of crazy every year, right. so you kind of got your stuff that you've been saving, and and then you try to plant a couple of other little crazy bits. Um, uh, right, because year. that will add a little bit of genetic diversity to my garden. But if I only add ten percent, then I don't really care if if it's bad and it contaminates my my patch, whatever. It's only ten percent. Okay. But there's one variety of squash that um, gets a field all to itself. Well, not a field all to but it's like in, in one of your plots, there's only one variety of squash grown. What one? I, I love my yellow crook neck. It's my, it must have fond memories from when I was a little baby or something like that, because I just love it. And I want to keep that pure, so I only grow yellow crook neck in, in one of my fields. So it's funny because as because you're talking and you kind of raised your hand up like this for a minute, and I kind of thought that looked like that Heil Hitler maneuver. Yeah. Oh, my plant racial purity. My plant purity. But I planted 20 varieties of yellow crookneck. <laughs> so so the the leaf shape can be different, the vine style can be different, mm-hmm. but the fruit shape has to be exactly the little yellow crookneck. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Um, well, which is another thing too is a lot of uh, seed growers, then uh, they're going to grow uh, um, like 20 acres of uh, yellow crookneck squash, mm-hmm. and then they're going to try and keep all the seeds. Right. Whether it's a, a like as opposed to the idea of like a, a, you go to cut into a squash and be like, wow, that one. It was like probably the best this year. Uh-huh. Definitely save these seeds, <laughs> um, as opposed to opening another one. It's like, yeah, that, that one's all right, and mm-hmm. then you just don't save the seeds. Right. Um, but what the 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 big industrial seed savers are going to do is that they're going to just no matter what, like, oh, is it a is it a shitty squash? Don't matter. Don't care. Throw it in with the rest, <laughs> people. Those suckers will pay, pay for anything. Uh-huh. Kind of like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because <clears throat> I, I taste every squash before I save seeds from it. I taste every tomato. Mm-hmm. And it makes it really easy to select for taste. Or so I. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So we've talked about squash. We've talked about cold crops. We've talked about the magic squash. We've talked about corn. And I got a note here that you've got something to say about this technique and raising peppers. Oh, well, sweet peppers and hot peppers can cross. And In I a good way. Well, I don't See, like... Now you, can, now you can tell me I'm wrong. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> you can believe whatever you want to believe, but I don't like surprises in hot peppers. I like to know that my pepper is going to be sweet. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I don't, like, I don't like to plant those two in the same field, because even though the probability of crossing is low, they can still cross, and I don't like surprises in my sweet peppers. So I I plant them in separate fields, and it works just fine. Okay. All right. Um, now I'm, gonna, I'm going back to um, the list in giant letters that's Jocelyn's notes of things to talk about. She's got a thing here about tomato varieties, but I think what she meant to write down was tomato species. That is what right. I meant to write down. That came up first thing at breakfast, and that's when I thought, oh, this needs to be a podcast. I think you brought that up, and my first response was, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and so, all right, so, uh, so about species, tomato species. Right, so tomatoes, domestic tomatoes that we're used to eating originated in Peru, and then they went to Mexico, and then they went from Mexico to Europe, and then they went from Europe back to America. In the process, they went through a couple of bottlenecks in their genetics, 
And so domestic tomatoes are highly inbred and very low genetic diversity in them. And and so to look for more um, to look for more traits, I've been crossing domestic tomatoes with wild tomatoes, and hoping that we'll get some blight tolerance, some cold tolerance, um, some tolerance to different kinds of soils, um, and things like that. And the wild tomatoes are self-incompatible. That means they have to have a pollinator. So they're 100% outcrossing. And domestic tomatoes are about 95% inbreeding. And so, so by... By selecting for a variety of tomatoes that is has that self-incompatibility trait, I'll be making fresh F1 hybrids. Every single seed will be a new hybrid. And so we can throw hundreds of thousands of genetic combinations, uh, the problems like blight tolerance. And Do you have a lot of blight in Utah? I don't have, I don't have, I don't know. Because I just grow stuff, and if it dies, I chop it out. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so I don't know. <clears throat> but I hear that back east they have a lot of blight troubles, and so that's really who my who I'm breeding this for. So now I know that um, for a while I lived in the Seattle area, and I had a garden, and um, in the and the uh, the guard the, the the tomato season ends in August mm-hmm. because everybody's tomatoes get obliterated by blight. Right. And so you're still a month and a half out from uh, first frost. Uh-huh. And I had tomatoes up till first frost. Nice. And, and because it's, of your soil. Well, we could say that. I think it was <laughs> I think it was dominantly because I did not water the leaves, and it's uh-huh. like um, right. and and it's like. Uh, People would find out that I'm a master gardener, and then they would say, how do I, you know, and I'd say, stop, stop watering the leaves. And I was yeah. like, how do you do that? And it's like, you water the soil, not the plant. And, uh-huh. and uh, how do you do that? And, <laughs> really? Are we, are we actually having this conversation? <laughs> Uh, and of course, you know, hey, how about a little mulch? How about a little hugel culture? How about uh-huh. you know a system? Because the other thing is, as a tomato is a desert plant, right? It yeah. is. Yeah, and so it doesn't need a lot of water. So, and then plus, when you water it that much, like these people are watering every day, it makes all your tomatoes taste like water. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, um, I kind of felt like the the real ingredient to grow tomatoes in Seattle. Is um, treat them like they were a desert plant. <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is is like um, abuse them more, perhaps. But then, of course, then a lot of people would get blossom end rot, right? You know, and um, but you know, oh, there's this, there's more to it. And uh, I don't know how many times somebody said to me that uh, tomato uh, tomato plant when the when it produces fruit, it's this big, and it's like. Oh, I've got something to show you. <laughs> it's 40 times bigger than that. And uh um and it's like that's not possible. That's a whole it's a whole different species. It can't possibly be a tomato. <laughs> well, and that's what shocked you is that at first you thought maybe he misspoke and that he was crossing varieties, uh, but he's crossing species. Right. And that's when you just like sat back <laughs> and it was like well, <gasps> I went to kick you in the nuts and I hurt my leg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love the wild tomato species because they have big promiscuous flowers. Uh and they they would look beautiful in a flower garden. Huh? Even if even if they didn't produce fruit, they'd just be beautiful flowers. Oh, fun. Yeah. But now these are nightshades. Yes. Okay. And the tomatoes are edible. Yes. There's. You're some... making a weird face as you say yes. <laughs> well, there's some funky <laughs> smells and tastes. And, but, but what's fun about it is I might be able to select for a tomato that actually tastes good. One that's fruity and sweet and has aroma. Because I'm finding all of those things in the wild tomatoes, and it's just a matter of, you know, separating out what what traits I like and what ones I don't like. Yeah, yeah. and and I think you said most of the wild varieties are smaller. They're a little bit more 
they're the size of a marble mostly. Okay. But then again, it's it's like uh, the same way that we got the tomatoes that we have now. They probably started off at the same size. Mm-hmm. And then. But because I'm crossing them with with domestic tomatoes, those genes for the bigger size are inside all of that, all of those plants. So you could eventually start selecting for that too. Right. Once but, you get the right combo. Okay. Now, well, e- even in the first generation, I'm getting fruits that are up to about a little smaller than a golf ball, let's say a ping pong ball size. Nice. Okay, so I want to say a thing, and it seems like about three months ago somebody told me that I was wrong about that, but then what they said seemed like a lot of backpedaling and sidestepping, and you know, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna say it, and then you can uh, kick that in the nuts. Oh so no! And that is, <clears throat> um, uh, the definition of a species is that. It will reproduce. So if you bring in a different species and you say, um, you know, uh, have sex with that plant, uh, then it'll either go, I don't want to. Or once in a long while, you can have something, but it'll be sterile. Um, and so when you're taking, you're basically you're saying that there are several other different species of tomato, which this is the thing that's news to me. I thought there was one species of tomato, but you're saying that there are other species, which means that they can't um, have babies if, if you mix uh, the domestic species with one of these alternative species. They can't have babies, but you're saying, and then I make them have babies. <laughs> have sex. It, Do it! See, uh, uh, as scientists, we want to separate things, and we want to make them different. But in real life, things are more similar than they are different. For example, the the one of the species I'm using is called Solanum ebrochites, and it can act as a pollen donor to domestic tomatoes, but domestic tomatoes can't pollinate the Solanum ebrochites, and so they're they're sort of they're sort of different species. But then I I get a little further away to like Solanum um, peruvianum, and I haven't been successful in making a cross between that and domestic tomatoes. Okay, and and I probably won't, but I might can make a cross between that to something that's midway in between, you know, and so the, the species, in my experience, is more like a, a spectrum. It's a, a whole lot of gray between, between species. How they might interact. Yeah. For, for example, I'm currently growing squash interspecies hybrids between Maxima and Moshada. And that those came about just by trying, you know, hundreds of different combinations of of varieties until two that were found that were were compatible. But then then they're male sterile. They don't produce male flowers. And so you know they're they're sorta it's it's really muddled rather okay. than being the clear cut. You know, this is a species and that is a species. Well, I mean, we need to have the word species, mm-hmm. you know, so we can talk about stuff. Right. We, we, you know, so we, this, this is what those wordy bits are all about, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. we communicate. But, um, okay, I, I see what you're saying, um, because just like you can have uh, a horse and a donkey and then you have a mule, mm-hmm. but the mule is sterile. And it's like, okay, there's other stories. The, 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 there are species, and it's like this is a fair place to like say this is a species mm-hmm. because um, um, variety A uh, will um, have a relationship with variety B and will produce kids that are kind of a mix of mom and dad, mm-hmm. and then th- that one can reproduce and so on and so forth. It's a pretty clear path right. species as opposed to this other species and it's like they can do this one weird thing <laughs> what's well, not in a while under it, the, it's not the a right full mixed in so a and b it's like not like it's all normal but when you do a and b there's this you end up with this oddity and mm-hmm. and uh and it can't exactly have kids the normal way right and when i do interspecies hybrids 
I might get 50% of the seeds that are that don't germinate. And so, you know, something funky is going on there, but there's enough things right that half of them can do okay. Okay. So it'll take a few generations to to get it back to being a species. Right. And then then what do I call it? <laughs> well, it's a, var- it's a variety. Yeah, but uh, what, spe- but, but which what species, species is it? Do I call oh, it at that I, point? See? Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good point. And of of course, it's probably a member of one species or the other species. Well, or a it, new species. Or both. I mean, well, you know, how do you? How well, do the you other ask? thing is, is that you could try to do more tests of like, okay, because now you've got subset C, right? There was mom A and dad B, and now you've got um, something that's clearly, I mean, it's producing children, which produce children, which produce children, so it's a species. Maybe it's maybe C is equal to A, or C is equal to B. <laughs> like, it, like C is a variety of A, or C is a variety of B, or... Maybe C is a whole new like like C uh, and A. There's like weird it, it, it could, breeding it, issues there, and uh-huh. C and B. There's weird breeding issues there. So you you've just you monster you you've created a whole <laughs> new species, and, and we have a name for it too, Cucurbita Loftausii. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I I I I. That's what the I I at love the end means. <laughs> Okay. Um, next, the next thing that Jocelyn's written in a very large font. Um, I like to write large. It's easier to read. Yeah, live large. I, that's that's I, it. Because yeah. we had to get two pages full of notes before we could start this podcast. And so Jocelyn, <laughs> Jocelyn's <laughs> sick of that. So she writes in a large font, so it'll go faster. Uh, yeah, but then, then she hands it. it off to me, and I wrote in my smaller font to I fill know. out the pages. And then I used two pages. Yeah. Well, I liked how Joseph was saying um, uh, that it's not a bad squash. It may have just fed the fungus or it may have fed the squash bugs. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That fills a niche in the ecosystem or a role in the ecosystem. So we, he's, he's much... Uh, more magnanimous and and kinder in his speak than Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't waste food and I don't waste water. It just feeds the worms. It uh, feeds right. the ecosystem. Whatever. Or that you're right, right. And so we something came up about um, bacteria and fungi. You know, attacking foods and attacking. Well, plants. shelf life. We were talking yeah, about yeah, like yeah. the food that you get at yeah. the grocery store. That's and and so um and basically this is something that I brought up in that podcast with Sally Fallon Morell mm-hmm. which um was probably one of my all-time best podcasts and at the same time one of my all-time worst because really what I should have done is read her book before interviewing her um and I didn't and so uh but 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 we were talking about the food that you get at a grocery store and how it has it's it's bread for a long shelf life right and it's like, okay, so how is it that it has a long shelf life? And so the thing I put to Sally Found Morell is uh, something that came from Michael Pollan. And it's that basically the um, the warriors of rot, which would be bacteria and fungus, looked at that and said, that's not food. <laughs> and so then, it, therefore, it doesn't rot. It's like, right. that's, that's um, we've we've checked it out. We've rubbed our bodies all over it. And we've hung out here thinking about, I'm going to eat this thing because I'm here. And, it, and I'm so tiny, it takes a long time to go elsewhere. But I've decided that this is so not food, I'm just going to die and not even reproduce. <laughs> I'm just going to die. And uh, it's like, it's more like a cardboard or, um, you know, rocks or something like that something that i that i can't eat and so it's it's not food uh i recommend nobody try to eat cardboard nobody try to eat this so um uh, that's why it has such an incredibly long shelf life sally fallon morell pointed out that the opposite is true when you've got uh, a really good strong healthy plant it naturally defends itself against funguses and bacterias and things of that nature. And then when you harvest it, it's uh, such a vibrantly healthy and good plant that um, it has a, a long shelf life. <clears throat> 
so, there are obviously at least two paths that one can follow to have a long shelf life. I suspect that it's the first path for the stuff that's in the stores. But I could I could be mistaken. I could be mistaken. But it does seem to me like when you go buy broccoli at any given store, it's all the exact same F1 hybrid variety. Uh-huh. And I used to know that varietal name, and I don't know what it is now. Um, but, and I've got like six names buzzing through my head, and it's like, which one is it? Is it that one? No, no, no. I'm not going to say it because right. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> and... Um, uh, as opposed to the stuff that you grow yourself, and then um, it's going to uh, probably not be that variety, and right. it'll have much better flavor. But then, of course, the um, the bacteria and the funguses will agree with your analysis on that being food, and it will have a very short shelf life. So, um, Jocelyn wrote this down as a thing for us to discuss. I think that that uh, what what is your feedback on this gob of stuff I just said? <laughs> I'm leaning towards both explanations. Yeah, that's where I'm yeah. at too. Uh-huh. So, why did we write this down? Why is this? Well, <laughs> well, I just thought it was an interesting conversation, and you know, there's all those internet memes. We talked about well, the internet well, memes too. See, I think it started because I was mentioning that I, since I save my own seeds for everything I grow, and if I'm saving winter squash seeds. I'm putting them on the shelf until I can get around to eating them. And that might be weeks or months down the road. And so whether I like it or not, I'm selecting for winter squash that have long storage capabilities. Yeah. And it's just inadvertent. But I really like it in my squash store a long time. Yeah. Well, in there, um, there's a book that I listened to called Eating on the Wild Side. And in that book, the author talks about how plants have ways to defend themselves against decay or cuts and Mm -hmm. injuries and things like that. And she's very detailed about how to get the highest nutrition out of your fruits and vegetables and how to store them for the highest nutrition retention and the longest shelf life. Even if you're buying, even if you're getting the strawberries that are really tender and tasty mm-hmm. and not the cardboard st- strawberries that can ship without bruising. So, um, yeah, so there is a little on both sides of that. That's all. I just thought it was interesting. Okay, um, and then yeah. the next thing we have in Jocelyn's handwriting is taproots. We were talking about taproots this morning, and <clears throat> I, I I shared with Joseph my thing about um, anytime you transplant, uh, you lose the taproot, and uh-huh. Joseph said, "Uh huh." There, there you heard it. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. So I I went down to a restaurant in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I had dinner at a and the proprietor came out and was telling us about his chiles. And he said that chiles that are grown direct-seeded are the way to grow chiles, and that anything that is transplanted is an imbecile. It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yeah. And what so is? now, uh, uh, so the tomatoes that you grow, mm-hmm. direct-seeded? No, I... Oh. I can't. I planted 10,000 tomato seeds last year and I got zero tomato plants established. From direct seeding? From direct seeding. But that's on my list of things to do. Surely. Well, the other thing is is that um, uh, you were telling me a little bit about uh, the techniques that you use, uh-huh. which make me cringe. Uh, but, right. you know, it's still still organic, well, you know. I, I have a <clears throat> tremendous um, flea beetle problem in my garden, and I think that the tomatoes get eaten by the flea beetles before they even germinate. Oh. oh. But, but if I put a plant out that's six inches tall can make it past that yeah. pressure. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Well, uh, surely you've had some volunteer tomatoes. Once every three or four years. Wow. Yeah. Really? I, I mean, I, it seems like, um, in my experience, I usually have about as many volunteers as I have planted myself. 
Um, not, and, not me. Okay. It, I I have struggled and and been really careful about preserving the area where the tomatoes grew last year, and I just don't find hardly any volunteers. So then, if it sounds like you if you grew uh, if you planted a thousand direct seeds. Um, every year for 20 years you might get nothing because of flea beetles uh, and i might find a variety that that survives the flea beetles that's where i was kind of going with it <laughs> is that it's like you know maybe and maybe another thing to do is like um uh, uh you know you plant your thousand seeds um and then you do some things to uh, mitigate flea beetles mm-hmm. so like the flea beetle problem is still there and it wipes out 90% but if you planted a thousand, then you well, got. Well, I uh, could I could plant radishes right next to the tomatoes, for example, because they'd prefer the radishes. Right. Uh, um, you know, I was thinking about like you could do things like lay down diatomaceous earth on a daily basis, which would be right. a lot of work and that'd be a lot of material. Um, but there's also stuff like um, I was kind of because I I faced the flea beetle problem when I was in Colorado for a couple of years and um, and, it, and it was it was amazing like how many there were like are you fucking <laughs> kidding me yeah it is a lot <clears throat> and so I was going out every day uh, uh, it seemed like I was doing it nearly every day when I get back from work um, I would do it and and I was vacuuming. Uh-huh. And um, and so I was vacuuming and throwing a little diatomaceous earth uh-huh. into the vacuum. And uh, just sitting here thinking about it, I was thinking, like, you know, I, I wonder what would happen if you put out, like, trays of soapy water. I'll bet the flea beetles would jump into the... Because they just jump everywhere. <laughs> I'm on a plant. Chomp, 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 chomp. But uh, the other thing is you can kind of bump the plant and the flea beetles kind of, you know, either fall off or they're like, you know... They want to jump for no right. reason, and so they, you know, bling. Well, and well, then if I had little dishes of soapy water everywhere, then it's like, <laughs> yeah, stupid the, flea beetles. They're not a problem after I start irrigating because they drown. Mm-hmm. But but now I you're watering the leaves. Yeah. Well, I don't care because I live in a desert, and so I. Oh, okay. All right. The, the plants are dry within minutes of turning the water off. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> so. <Yeah. clears throat> That's I I thought for sure your answer was going to be that everything you did with um was was direct seeding um and no. uh, not to, so to, tomatoes are my big exception to that and it has to do with the flea beetles uh, if it I, wasn't I, for those I damn so. flea beetles okay all right all right um what does this say Jocelyn uh, you guys already discussed that limiting varieties for seed saving. Oh, okay. All right. Varieties All right. Now I've got my little sub notes yeah, on yeah. that, which we've you already are, covered. You already covered that. Now, uh, the next item I've got on here, and this is my handwriting, uh, living with bindweed. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a technique I've never heard of before. What's that? <laughs> oh. Oh. So, so... My feeling about bindweed is it's going to grow anyway, but if I keep it weeded during the cool weather through about the 1st of June, then I, then it can grow for the rest of the year, and I don't care because whatever. Right. Kind of get shaded out or something. Yeah, it, it, if, I, if I plant corn or squash in an area, the bindweed basically dies during the summer from being shaded out. And so, so that's a strategy I use for, I'll plant corn one year and then I, or squash one year and get rid of the bindweed and then I can plant the more delicate plants the next year without having a lot of bindweed pressure on them. Okay. So, um, and then there was also no, because on on another list that we're going to get to later, where we were talking about, um... Uh, things that you can grow that are going to be greens for your chickens through the winter. Uh-huh. And, and uh, your climate's probably a lot like the climate here in Montana. Because you're close. in Utah. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm like a 4B zone. So I get lots of snow during the winter, but when it melts, like I might have growing right now, I have spinach and chickweed. But before we get into that yeah. list, because we got the list written down later, we're going to okay. get into that. But 
one of the notes about bindweed was is is like um, uh, first of all, I never noticed bindweed being a particularly you know big plant in the wintertime, but the no. big thing that you observed, which I thought was like, oh, maybe there's <laughs> a relationship there. And so bindweed and chickens, what's what is it that you observed? So I don't have bindweed growing around the chicken coop. So maybe they're eating it off dirt earlier in the season or something. Now, um, bindweed... Or also it might be that the soil's just more nutritious there. True. Cause I, now, I think that bindweed is an indicator of poor topsoil. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily pure fact. But um, uh, it does seem like bindweed does not compete well with stuff that enjoys a good topsoil. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in my experience, I think bindweed grows best in places that don't get irrigated. And so higher irrigation can lower the bindweed, but that might be a competition issue as well. Yeah, because bindweed's got a, got roots that go down like 25 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And so they're finding, you know, moist things down deep that other plants haven't found. Right. And, um, and it's got a large carbohydrate reserve. And so when mm-hmm. you see, like, look at all these. I went out and I pulled up 400 <laughs> bindweed plants. They might actually all be the same plant. Right. You know, and just different um, bits of it sticking up from the surface. But a possible observation is is that because bindweed is edible, and it, and it's possible that the chickens are saying yum yum, and so they obliterate the the bindweed possibly. Mm-hmm. And right. so if somebody's got a bindweed problem, they actually have a lack of chickens. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, it's it's a, it's a possible theory. Now you asked me to write down. The word muskmelons. Right. Well, muskmelons were the first project that were my first breeding project. And I planted, we already talked about it earlier, but I planted a whole bunch of muskmelons and then I selected for what really thrives with my taste buds and my, my smelling receptors and whatever. And so that's my favorite crops to grow now because <laughs> now you've got uh, it's not just muskmelons but it's, it, Joseph, it's Joseph Joseph's favorite special most the bestest <laughs> lovely melon and food that you could ever possibly eat and I make muskmelon wine and muskmelon vinegar and, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah I just love them uh, okay. also known as cantaloupes no. No? Cantal- oh, man. Joseph almost slapped <laughs> Jocelyn. I know. Jeez. Jocelyn, back up. No, He's no, coming right for no, you. No. <laughs> I love it. So a cantaloupe. I go to the farmer's market and people say, oh, cantaloupe. I don't like cantaloupe. And I'm like, that's because... What you buy in the grocery store is a cantaloupe. <laughs> this is a musk melon. It's got smell and aroma and taste. Oh, very good. That's not no damn musk or cantaloupe. <laughs> but but they really are a totally different product. I mean, they're not. Yeah. They're not even close to the same. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I thought I heard you referring to what you were selecting for previous in the podcast as cantaloupe. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. Well, I, I might get lazy in my talking sometimes. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. No, I, I planted cantaloupes. I'm currently growing muskmelons. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you uh, go. One day I put a couple of crates of them in the cab of my truck with me to take him to market, I about got gassed out. Because <laughs> they're so fragrant. Uh-huh. So fragrant. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.